When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of the Book Riot Podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. With over 150,000 titles to choose from in all genres, Audible.com is the leading supplier of audiobooks. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring the Book Riot Podcast. This is the Book Riot Podcast, normally a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. But this is episode 86, and it's our 2014 year in review show. I'm Rebecca Shinsky here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Happy end of the year. We've combed the archives. We have. We've done, by my count, 51 episodes this year. Mm -hmm. Um, I might be a little off on that. And we talk about between seven and ten stories per show, usually, in addition to follow-up and new books and ads and banter. So yeah. that means we, we talked about, you and you and I and Amanda talked about 500 or so stories oh this gosh. year. That's crazy. And several hundred books. And our Google Doc agenda that we just add to every week is now more pages long than I can even bring myself yeah, to check. Yeah, we may need check. to start a new one of those for 2015. I don't know. I does this go of, all the way to the beginning of the show, that Google Doc? It does. That Google Doc goes all the way to the beginning of the show. I think we have to notes. continue it for that very reason, just for posterity. Right. At some point, we can like put it in a time capsule of all the links we ever found interesting while making Book Riot. It's like a thousand and one Arabian Nights of nerdy book news. Um, <laughs> so we're going to go through. We've got some... We're, we're calling them sort of year-end awards. So we're going to go through some of our favorite stories, the most notable stories, the most head-scratching stories, just things that stuck out and were important and bizarre and cool, um, and then do a, a lightning round of some of the things we take aways, and then we're going to do our own personal favorite books uh, of the year. Before we get to that, we're going to thank our longtime sponsor, Audible. It's kind of appropriate that Audible is here sponsoring our year-end show. Um, Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks, over 100,000 150,000 titles to choose from. I almost uh, skimped them, 33% of their catalog to choose from. From fiction, nonfiction, bestsellers, every category that is reasonable to imagine, they've got there. Unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your books, you own your files, you stop subscribing to Audible, you can still access your files and listen to them whenever you want to. They've got free apps for iPhone, Android, Windows Phone, Basically, if you have an MP3 player that is more, you know, less than 10 years old, they have an app and a way for you to listen to it on your phone. The My Library feature lets access your ebooks anytime, even when you're not online. You can download the file. You don't have to be uh, connected to the internet. So if you're on a plane, you are out in the middle of the, the field tending the wheat, uh, you are on the subway and don't have internet access, you can still listen to all of your downloaded audiobooks there. Um, Chapter navigation, annotated bookmarks. If you want more information about where you are and what happened, um, another thing they have is immersion reading on the Kindle Fire HD lets you listen to read and read at the same time and highlights the text as you read along with the narrator. A lot of interesting applications for this if you're learning a language, if there's 
jargon, vocabulary that you don't know how to say, that, that common reader's lament of, I know that word and what it means, but if I have to say it out loud, I'm going to embarrass myself and my ancestors. So that's one thing you can use immersion reading for. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookwrap for a free 30-day trial that inclu- includes a free audiobook of your choice. And uh, that lets them know that we sent you and that they'll continue sponsoring the show. Thank you so much to Audible for sponsoring this show and many other Book Riot podcast episodes. Yeah, perfect timing for Audible, especially at the end of the year. Yeah. I'm going to listen to some audiobooks while I'm traveling next week. Great. Good way to ignore all those people in the airport. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, do we start off with the – It's. I feel the first thing we have here is kind of like starting with Best Picture. Mm. I don't know. Your call. I'll, I'll leave it to you. Let's start somewhere else. We'll yeah, come back yeah, we'll around come back to Best to... Picture. Leave the people hanging for a yeah, bit. Yeah, okay. You want to talk – let's see. Hmm. Man, hmm. this was a fun and interesting. It was. There's a lot. I, I actually had trouble winnowing it down. Um, yeah, when I looked back over the notes and then I looked back at the agenda from our year in review show last year, it felt to me like there wasn't an overarching story of publishing in 2014. And in 2013, we had Scribd and Oyster came out, subscriptions were a thing. There were like a ton of interesting digital experiments. And we covered some of those this year, but it seems like that was the big story of 2013, that things were leveling out and the sky wasn't actually falling was a big, you know, overarching feeling of 2013. And I just haven't felt like 2014 had a main story. So instead we just have a a bunch of little stories. Or I guess, you know what, this is actually just selection bias I was because say, of course I think, the 2014 story was right. Amazon, Amazon and Hachette. Hachette. That's just what I was going to say. We give this the, thing, the, the, the award for the thing we're most tired of talking about, uh, Amazon and Hachette, a multi-month uh, standoff between Amazon and Hachette about, I guess, Hachette retaining control of ebook pricing. We still really don't know what the sticking points mm-hmm. were. But over, I guess it was about a month or so ago, it, it felt like the straw that, that broke the stalemate, that's not the idiom, but anyway, you get what I'm trying to say, was Simon Schuster sort of coming in under the radar mm-hmm. and basically re-upping with Amazon at its current terms of you know being able to keep agency pricing and mostly you know, S&S being able to determine the prices for which their, their books are sold on Amazon. And then whatever the sticking point was between Amazon and Hachette seems to have been influenced by that somehow. Either Hachette wanted more than that deal that Simon & Schuster got and they saw SNS sign like, well, okay. Or Amazon signed with SNS and that was enough for them to finally cave to whatever it is Hachette was going for. I think one of the stories for me, and again, I've been meaning to write this post for a while. Maybe I'll get to it after the first of the year. I've got a couple more points for it, is that Amazon seems to have kind of cooled for me in 2014. Uh, in terms of growth, I just linked on Twitter mm-hmm. to a story about how Amazon's share of the ebook and print market is flat in 2014 over 2013. And you want to say where it's flat? Uh, everywhere. Well, I mean, mean? the number where it's flat? Oh, um, well, let's see. Hold on. I don't have it in front of me. I'm sorry. But I think it's around 57% of print books in the U.S., uh, and then around no no I'm sorry I've got that backwards I think it's around 57 percent of ebooks and then like around 33 percent of all books something like that I, I'll I'll put the link to the to that most recent study in the show notes here um, but not only that they had the uh, the Fire Phone debacle mm-hmm. um, 
a lot I had of their, the Kindle worlds the Kindle that didn't really go that, anywhere. That went nowhere. Kindle Unlimited, the stories I've been following out of there, it seems very much like a mixed bag. Um, they've even had to pump in some extra money from other income sources to prop up the payments to authors for uh, their per read um, numbers there. Uh, you know, the, the most recent Kindle, it's good, but it's not going anywhere great. The, the iPad is becoming more and more of a player in the e-reading space as our Android tablets. I don't know. You know, we had the, the, the editor over there. I forget his name. Ed Yang. Was that his name? No, what's his name? Who I can't left remember. to go to the, the Penguin the left Press, one to go to right? Penguin, who was in charge of Amazon's literary publishing, mm-hmm. left over there. They, it just felt like there was no, it's, it just kind of fizzled. It just yeah, kind of treading water. It's been a while since Amazon had a win yeah. in a big way, which we have talked about on several occasions yes, with the ongoing projects that have been announced and then haven't gone anywhere. Um, that 33% of the whole book market thing, the, like, the reason I was asking about that number particularly is that the narrative that people like to throw no. out about Amazon is that they're the big bad, that they're taking over everything, that they have a monopoly and that we have to fight against this monopoly. And uh, and we talked a ton during the Amazon Hachette thing about how this was two big corporations. This was not a David Goliath situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just want that number out there. You know, I, I am not personally a huge fan of Amazon, but I'm also not of the belief that 33% of a market constitutes a monopoly. Yeah. If um, we're going to talk about it, let's talk let's, about the number. Right. right? Let's pull the hyperbole yeah. out of it. Um, also, Amazon took some steps during the thing with Hachette where it looked like they were not coming from such a position of strength. Maybe they were starting to recognize that they weren't coming from the position of, of total strength anymore. Um, in, in terms of some of the statements that they released and the way that they worded those statements and the way that they released them and got them out there, this was not like the swaggering Amazon of what, five Mm -hmm. years ago. So I I just pulled up the study that I'm going to link to, but e-commerce outlets in total, led by Amazon, accounted for 39% of all unit purchases for the first um, three quarters of 2014. So that's that's all online book buying. So Printer, 61% of books happen offline? Outside, offline, offline. And then the ebook number is 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, is Amazon is 57%. So Amazon is no more than 39% of all books bought. Um, because there's some other online retailers. Like some people buy through Powell's and Barnes and Noble yeah. on their online presences. Right, there. sure, Kobo, iBooks. So anyway, um, that that's the that was the big sort of takeaway for me on the meta scale. I mean, related to that, I think to some degree, and I don't know how to draw a straight line, is sort of the 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 incremental increase in the health of books and publishing on the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the story. Well, when you're listening to this, it will have been last week, but we just recorded it yesterday about how. Um, all the, the book publishing industry is up about 4.9% over the year. Trade sales up about 2.8%. Profits and revenues are up almost universally um, among at least even medium to the big boy publishers. So that's another thing is that it's sort of we've seen more independent bookstores opening this year, fewer stories uh, about closing bookstores. Barnes & Noble seems to be regrouping uh, even as they're trying to slough off the cancerous nook. Um, to somebody else, there's rumors. I guess Walmart's <laughs> interested in it, but anyway, so that's uh, those two maybe go hand in hand to some degree. Is as Amazon treads water, publishing has scratched and clawed its way up a little bit for this year. So those are maybe those, that, that's kind of the big picture for the whole yeah. industry for us. All right, uh, where do you want to go next? I want to talk about the Chipotle cups. Yeah. <laughs> 
This was when I went back through the agenda, the giant agenda doc from yeah. this year and was just looking for the segments I remembered and the stories that were weird. When the news came out that Jonathan Safran Foer was curating a series of literary themed Chipotle cups with short essays and short stories written by a whole bunch of people for they would they call it curating thought is that it oh it's something of, insufferable of the series. Like that. I, I just remember the internet exploding that week in a bunch of like oh but high culture literature on low culture burrito cups and what is it all coming to and mm-hmm. like that in itself was ridiculous and fun but I think that parsing the Toni Morrison essay on the Chipotle cup with you live on the air was like my favorite four minutes of 2014. Yeah, like how badly is Morrison slagging on four? Because that, that was the narrative, right? Four, right. Jonathan Saffron Four was eating a sad, lonely burrito. And he's like looking at his cup or bag or whatever and says, there should be stuff on this. And I guess he contacted because of four and power mm-hmm. and whatever – someone at Chipotle that could make a decision and pitched them. And they said, great. And they got, was Michael Lewis was on there and Malcolm George Saunders Gladwell. and Marco Gladwell and Tony Morrison. Um, and apparently the rumor is, I don't know if we talked about this on the show, Michael Lewis let slip, not an exact number, but that he was pretty well compensated <laughs> by uh, Chipotle for the experience. Yeah, I think it's also sort of a perfect Book Riot podcast story, right? Because it it's some of, it's some of our favorite authors. Um, we both where like Tony Chipotle. Meets it's commerce, it's food, like it's just live. sort of weird. It um, is. That was a great it, story. Yeah, and the, her essay, like you said, is kind of, or her story, which is called Two Minutes Seduction, is like a not-so-thinly-veiled slag on the whole thing, on the, yeah, the whole on production the whole of enterprise. it. Like, I took my heart out and gave it to a writer made heartless by fame, someone who needed it to pump blood into veins desiccated by the suck and roar of crowds slobbering or poisoning or licking up the red froth they mistake for happiness because happiness looks just like a heart painted on a Valentine cup or tattooed on an arm that has never held a victim or comforted a hurt friend. (laughs) I took it out and the space it left in my chest was sutured tight like the skin of a drum. And then it goes on, but just... Don't hurt him, Tony. Don't hurt him. Jeez <laughs> Louise. By far my favorite, just weird bookish news for just the confluence of everything. Yeah, that's really... That you have a Nobel Prize winning writer on a Chipotle cup is like, that is highbrow meets whatever supposedly brow. lowbrow. Yeah. yeah, whatever brow. And it's the perfect storm of thing that people in publishing really wanted to talk and maybe be angry about for a week. But now these cups exist in the world and no one cares. Like No, no one cares. And uh, I got the Bill Hader cup a couple weeks ago at Chipotle. So and I was like, oh, that's this guy. But then you're like, oh, well, it's better than reading another two minute snarky little mm-hmm. essay about like how we make the rice. And like we let's just acknowledge we're all reading whatever's on the cup because that's what book people do. Like, how many times have I read my cereal box at this point? Yeah. Um <laughs> Here's one that we do a lot of studies, and the Mm -hmm. study that has stuck with me the most this year is the one, and I I think we talked about this way back in April, but a survey shows that more affluent people not only read more books than non-affluent people, and this is a UK survey, Mm -hmm. which we all kind of know, right, implicitly or explicitly, but not only that, but the, the, the affluent people feel better about the reading they do. Than, than non-affluent people. And, and that one... How's it worded? 
about how they feel. Let's I remember being see. interested in that. Now I can't find it. Um, I don't have it. Oh, it just here. says say reading helps to make them feel good. Oh, it helps them make feel good. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, and that's one where I don't know. For me, I guess the rubber kind of meets the road in the the way that class affects not just how people, how and what people read, but their attitude towards reading. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's kind of like, and one thing we do at Book Ride is we rail against snobbery and elitism in, in reading attitudes. And I think this is one reason why, because this is the net effect of a system of literary taste making, taste making that denigrates some kinds of books and reading mm -hmm. and elevates others. Um, this is what I think I care about when I care about people not being jerks about books, is that it, the net effect is that people who don't read and have access to or had a, enough school to be able to get through, say, a Toni Morrison novel or even know who Toni Morrison is, feel the accumulated weight of high culture and feel like they're not doing what they should, even if they don't know what that is. Um, which I think is super unfair and really sad. Mm -hmm. So that that one is going to that this study is going to stick with me a long time because it gives sort of voice to an underlying suspicion I have about why it does matter that people aren't jerks to each other about what they read. I agree. We talk so much about how there's no right or wrong way to be a reader and no good you know good books better books um, to read as a reader, but that the the good reading life is the one that makes each individual reader feel the best about whatever it is they want to get out of their reading, whether it's entertainment or escape or edification or to be challenged or to be amused or, or whatever. Um, the opportunity to make a choice like that and to spend your time reading to meet any of those desires, um, not even needs, but desires is a huge privilege. Mm -hmm. And, and then that, People who have less access to that opportunity, like you were saying, bear the weight of high culture when when they do get to read something, feeling less good about what they're reading or that their reading makes them feel less good in general or mm -hmm. is less of a... Uh, it's also possible that when you're in a, a privileged position like we are and life is relatively easy, mm -hmm. it doesn't take much to make you feel better. You know, you have a stressful day, <laughs> right. you get to, you know, you get to, you have a stressful day, you get to sit down in a comfortable, quiet place and open a book for 20 minutes. And that's a thing that is sufficient to help you diffuse from your, you know, diffuse your day. Um, but if you are working multiple jobs and you're struggling to make ends meet, and you have whatever kind of family situation um, in, in lower socioeconomic groups, those are bigger problems. Yeah. And so you need bigger fixes to them than spending 20 minutes reading. And I think that might also be something that's happening there. But this was a, a memorable and interesting study for that, for pulling out that statistic for sure. Um, let's do one of our favorite new kinds of book event ideas. I think you found this one. So why don't you take us through this one? Oh, yeah. I remember seeing this is the human library. Yeah. And it's, oh, where did my link go? There we go. Sorry, I'm having a show notes problem. <laughs> <laughs> I read about this a while back, and it was an event being held. 
where they would have it's at a, a Danish group of youth activists, um, and then. They're, they were having this event with a human library where a bunch of humans signed up, humans who had interesting stories to tell, and each person was functionally a book in the human library. Mm-hmm. And at the event, you could go up and check out one of those humans who would then sit down with you and tell you their story. And I just thought it was really creative and interesting that one of the things we talk about as readers is being fascinated by other lives and the glimpses into other ways of being that books give us. And so for someone to take this reframing of um, of that and have people tell their stories to other people and use a human-to-human interaction as windows onto the world, I thought was really cool. Um, and there's a special website for the Human Library Project. Um, we're going to be doing some event stuff in 2015, and I'm thinking about maybe having something like this be involved. I just thought it was so cool. Yeah. And it got it got me thinking about like what would I like what's the story that I would tell? And that, yeah, I would be paralyzed I think by uh, indecision, but I think it was a very interesting idea to use the library, I guess, metaphor mm-hmm. um to try some other kind of interaction that you wouldn't be able to experience in a different way. Um you know, cuz you know, we think about a library as an abstract idea as a way of thinking about shared access to whatever. You know, we mm-hmm. use library to mean that basically. It's something you can put in and take out and then other people can put in and take out as well. And this is really um, using that metaphor to think about experience and other people's mm-hmm. experience. Um, that one was definitely cool. Um, speaking sort of cool, of, okay, the Cooler Heads Prevailing Award. Ah. Uh, we don't like, and really I don't know anyone who really cares about books in a serious way, ever likes to hear about a book being banned. Um, but... So rather than sort of rail in, in you know, any number of cases, well, there's one we're going to talk about in a minute. I, I'm gonna, so I'm going to erase all that, strike all that out, I just said. <laughs> um, but we did have a case this year of a school board banning a book and then doing the shockingly revolutionary thing of reading the book and then <sighs> deciding what to do with it. This was a case in Grants Pass, Oregon, in which the school board had banned Sherman Alexie's absolute true story of a part-time Indian for use in a 10th grade English class. Uh, and then each board member read the book, and all but one found the matter, quote-unquote, found the subject matter not nearly as objectionable as they've been led to believe. And that oh. led, had been led to believe, I think, tells the story of a lot of school book banning stories, right? It certainly that does. past participle, passive voice was led. Someone else was the, was the main actor and painted a picture of a book. Uh, to someone who has and not read it. And the someone else painting the picture might not have even read it. May not have even read it. They may may have only heard their kids say, man, there's a sex scene in this, or, you know, read a blurb on Wikipedia, or whatever else had you. Um, but this is a case where the book, the, excuse me, school board did the right thing uh, in the wrong order. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think if you're going, I wish that, you know, books were never challenged. Of course, that's what I wish. Yeah. But I think that we should institute some sort of rule that if you're going to try to get a book taken out of a library or off of your your child's reading list or something, you should have to pass a comprehension test oh, about the book yeah. before you're allowed to to do this. It's so absurd that this, that this is even a story we have to tell, mm-hmm. that a school board agreed to ban 
a book and then went back and actually read the book to make the determination. How is reading the book not a part of the process when you're trying to decide if a book should be banned, even though the answer is always no, a book should never be banned? Like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if you want to put... It's like cooler heads prevailed in the room we should never have been standing in in the first place. <laughs> yes, they should never have had their hat on. They should have been cool the whole time. <laughs> so that we like to see that. Um, let's see. Where do you want to go next? Do you remember the poetry brothel? Yes. Did we? <laughs> I was going to tie this to the human library. Oh, I'm the, sorry. The I, checking I out. It's all right. Yeah. It's, it's cool. You know, we can't always have our buttery smooth segues. Mm-hmm. Um, I read this story came out a couple of months ago. I don't know if we actually talked about it on the or maybe air, we but just it was linked to it and looked it was, at it. Yeah, it was in one of the agendas. But in New York, um, there's a cocktail bar called Back Room, and this was a piece from the Guardian uh, that a that the person wrote after going to the back room to the poetry brothel, where you pay for a woman's time and company Mm. and she calls herself a poetry whore and then sits on a fur covered day bed next to you while wearing a leather corset and harem pants like quote a gypsy girl from a fairy tale and then for about 10 minutes or so reads poetry and talks to you and entertains you and then there are like sheer curtains hanging around so you can see other poetry brothel transactions happening and this was founded the poetry brothel was founded i guess in 2008 um, by stephanie berger and nicholas adamski who met while enrolled in the new school's creative writing program and they bonded over a shared (laughs) dissatisfaction with new york's dry highbrow poetry scene Mm. so this is the solution (laughs) Mm. and I just don't know what to say about it <laughs> other than I cannot believe that this is a story that I am reading about how sex work and poetry are two of the oldest professions and are both incredibly intimate acts that explore love, fantasy, and the underside of people. I don't I, know what to say about that, Shinsky. I really don't. <laughs> uh, just, this It's just the weirdest book I mean, not quite look, invent, but whatever rhymes service. your couplets uh, is what <laughs> I've got to say about that. It's, I think it's just surprising. Yes, it is surprising. It is surprising. I'm not offended by it. No, I don't I'm not, a, not offended by it. No, I don't have a problem with it. If someone wants to offer the service of reading poetry for 10 minutes wearing Isn't a corset kind of and Susan someone else. Sarandon did in Bull Durham. Remember that? Oh, right. Ties Tim Robbins up and reads him Walt Whitman. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Handcuffs, I think, actually. Uh, all right. No <laughs> segue. No from segue there, from but just there. a weird, just a weird and interesting. The book world is full of you know these weird little interesting pockets. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed. Uh, I guess Lunds, we'll let's stay on weird news. Save me, Jack. So we'll stay on weird news for a second. Speaking of um, poetry uh, getting out of hand, mm. uh, a poetry versus prose argument led to a stabbing death in Russia. This was way oh, back man. in January. This was so great and weird. So uh, a former teacher was detained in the Earl Mountains after being accused of stabbing an acquaintance to death in a dispute about literary genres. The 67-year-old victim insists that the only real literature is prose, um, and 
this outraged a, the 53-year-old suspect who favored poetry. And the dispute ended with the ex-teacher stabbing his friend to death. Oh, and also both of them were drunk. I find I know we're both completely shocked about that. I mean, it does speak to the essential rend at the heart of Russian literature between sort of Pushkin and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. There's a great poetical tradition and a great prose tradition in Russia. But I'm guessing that this wasn't just about poetry and prose. I, yeah, I, I'm this, just going to put that on the line. This seems to me like maybe the friendship version of when you have an argument with your partner about how to load the dishwasher. Yes. And it's totally not about the dishwasher at all. And it's actually about the all. toilet. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Jeff, that was... Right. Uh, it, uh, it's actually <laughs> about the toilet seat. Um, but that no, one no. Uh, that one jumps out. That one jumps out. That you. was very memorable. I just the don't carry a knife people. around. I mean, I don't know. Well, well, that was your takeaway here. One should carry a knife no, around. No, one shouldn't <laughs> carry a knife around. Ah. Anyway, so uh, if you ever find yourself in a heated literary dispute, check your surroundings. Are you both drunk at the time? If so, stop the, stop the argument. You know, the other side, I think, it's, is that, I mean, I make light. It's a sad stuff. I mean, good, it is. I somebody mean, died. Horrible. It is sad. It's so if far the, away and it seems so absurd that I sort of, part of me just can't believe it. It feels like a story in a in a short story collection or something like a allegory or something but this is someone's real life so that's we shouldn't joke about that but it's definitely one that jumped out in the relatively you know docile field of books and reading well yeah usually someone gets in an argument about poetry or prose and it's like and so the flame war Right, someone subtweeted about it, yeah, right. or like then we stopped going to the same literary. <laughs> yeah, no, this has ended in Mortal Kombat. Right. Um, so that's that's one that jumped out to us there as well. Uh, speaking of pain, oh, I know where this, this story. This story, and I guess it's sort of over now. But the one we had a good stretch there, kind of like DiMaggio, uh, of talking about some Harper release. Harper Lee related stories for like, I feel like it was like 10 episodes in a Forever. row. Forever. Like we literally talked about Harper Lee, I think on the very first episode of the yes, show. We did. And That's we right. talked about so many Harper Lee sad things. Um, her estate being in turmoil was one, though that seems to have gotten straightened out. The kerfluffle, maybe it's more of a tempest, somewhere between a kerfluffle and a tempest about the book about the, the reporter that went down there mm-hmm. and befriended the Lee sisters and then wrote a book which the author says she thought the Lee sisters were, they understood what was happening, and then the Lee family says that's not at all what we understand. The the dispute about the To Kill a Mockingbird Museum mm-hmm. uh, down there in Alabama, that the Lee estate then sued, and then they made a settlement and something else. Was there something else? I think those were maybe the three I big... I think those were the three big ones. It just... It was Harper like Lee's general decline as well. Yeah. Her health is apparently super bad. Her sister, actually, who was spearheading some of these, um, you know, whatever you want to call them, events from the Lee side, died re- recently, mm-hmm. Alice. I don't yeah, think just I a few up, weeks ago. I don't think I ended up linking to that. So I don't know how much more we're going to hear from, from this generation of Lees, but... That was a story that every week it felt like there's another body blow in uh, in the Harper Lee saga. Mm. Oh, there was a great Harper Lee story though. That there was. Um, there was. It was on the read the um, Dear Book Nerd podcast when Victor Laval was on with our colleague Rita Mead, who hosts Dear Book Nerd. He was talking about how he worked for. Um, a used book dealer, like a used and rare book dealer in New York City. Yes, I remember this now. Continue. Yeah, and the book dealer, go back, if you haven't heard the episode, friends, just go back and and listen. This part is great. But the 
uh, the book dealer it's somehow comes across an old copy of To Kill a Mockingbird that is in good shape. And Harper Lee, you know, doesn't go to events. She doesn't do signings. She is hard to get a hold of. But he, like, writes her a letter and puts the book in it and sends it off and just, like, crosses his fingers that maybe Harper Lee will read this letter from a book dealer and sign the book and send it back to him so that he could have this signed copy. And he sends it off and, like, never hears anything. And there's then just a random day at work where the buzzer at their building, um, you know, buzzes up into the office and says that a, a woman is here and she says her name is Lee to um, to talk to him. And he's, you know, of course, not thinking that it's going to be Harper Lee. But when the, the book dealer went downstairs, it was Harper Lee mm. who had come, who was in New York on business and had come to deliver the signed copy of To Kill a Mockingbird to him herself. Well, that's an amazing story. So cool. That's a cool story. Um Anyway, so that the uh, endlessly talking about Lee, I guess, is goes on our most painful um, ongoing story. Right. I feel like we now need ten great things to happen related to yeah, Harper I Lee, know, so just so I that know. we can balance out all the, uh, oh, you the know, sad Harper Lee stuff we've had to, to talk kill, about. To Kill a Mockingbird finally came out as an ebook. That was another thing that because oh, right. for a long time the estate was in such disarray that they couldn't even figure out the rights and how to figure that out else. Um, we are, speaking of um, ebooks and tech, we do talk about tech things a lot. We'd like to follow that. One thing that didn't go anywhere this year um, that we had a couple of stories about, a couple of startups working mm-hmm. on speed reading apps. Yep. Spritz was one. There's another one. I don't remember the name of it. Basically, that's used a couple of different eye tracking techniques and also just single words at a time in rapid succession on small screens. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff, but has been a dud in terms of actually getting in front of consumers and in places that you could actually use them. So that that one's gone nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't year. heard anything about that. On the other side, it does feel like 2013 we saw the launch of some subscription services. Mm-hmm. And I feel like 2014, they've been steamrolling. You know, we've got more and more on uh, Scribd and Oyster, especially uh, Macmillan just signed a deal and Bloomsbury too, mm-hmm. where they have a bunch more titles, I think on Oyster, but I'm not sure about Scribd for those. More and more titles in both of those services and some front list as well. Um, chugging along. They didn't die There's, out. They got more yeah. investment on both sides. That's... I guess maybe that's the big story of 2014 for digital and yeah. tech. There wasn't a big new, like last year we gave Oyster the tech development of the year award mm-hmm. or something um, on the end of your show because we loved that subscription ebook model. And so there wasn't an equivalent new thing, but I'm really glad that now we're at the end of 2014 and that these subscription services not only still exist, but have continued to grow. And bundling, we've dipped our toe uh, in bundling right, this year. Right. And maybe mm-hmm. that's kind of what, you know, the Oyster was dipping toe in subscription. And we haven't seen a, well, BitLit, was that 2013? I think the first time we talked about yeah, that. I think There's so. some problem, you know, it's limited. Mm-hmm. But we saw HarperCollins try some. We saw Barnes & Noble, Noble try that some bundling. In the bookstore test. You know, there's there's right. some things going on there. So maybe maybe that's something we'll get to in a minute things we're watching for in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, but there we go there. Okay. We should go to our next sponsor. Yeah, we definitely should. Kobo. Speaking of ebooks. Speaking of ebooks, Kobo. Kobo is back. They've also done a lot of sponsoring for this year, which we're really um, appreciative. This episode is brought to you by Kobo. Kobo has, only f- have, has over 4 million ebooks in dozens of categories, from bestsellers to any breakouts, world class magazines, over 100,000 kids' titles. With the free Kobo app that you can get on your phone, tablet, computer, really nice 
e-reading experience on your mobile app. You can switch between devices without losing your spot. Talked about it before. If you're interested in supporting your local independent bookstore and you're interested in buying e-books, one thing that you can do is check with a, your local independent bookstore or any independent bookstore um, and see if they're part of this program where Kobo, you, your Kobo purchases a percentage of your um, dollars spent through Kobo will get kicked back to the independent bookstore. So you can sort of have your cake and eat it to support your local independent physical bookstore and get a great digital e-reading experience. Go to Kobo.com to get started. One other thing I haven't talked about before, and it's not in the, in the, the notes they give us here to talk about, is that Kobo off, routinely has good discounts. Like just today, I saw there's a 35% off and a whole big collection of interesting looking ebooks. So if you go sign up with an account for Kobo, you get access to one use unlimited codes to go and, you know, cut yourself a few bucks off an ebook that you're looking to buy. So thanks so much to Kobo for sponsoring the show. Okay. All right. I, I wanted to go, let's still save. Let's see. Um, I liked, let's do Kickstarter. Okay. We had a couple, well, three, I think, really interesting ones. The headliner is, well, I don't know. Do you think the headliner was the We Need Diverse Indiegogo campaign or the Reading Rainbow Smash $5 million plus campaign? Mm, I think it's no surprise that Reading Rainbow yeah, smashed $5 million. Dollars. It's nostalgia like, of our Burton. Like, how are you going right, to that? Right. You have multiple generations of people invested in loving yeah. Reading Rainbow and seeing it continue. So I think the story is we need diverse books. They started a Indiegogo campaign to fund basically ongoing operations, a 5013 nonprofit, doing a variety of things to address something we've talked about a lot on the show this year is the lack of diversity in books and publishing, both in terms of character, subject matter, and authorship and editorship for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, they raised $181,676 of their $100,000 goal. Um, yeah, I mean, it was amazing. It really got a lot of traction behind it. The We Need Diverse Books as a tagline and campaign. You can go to www.diversebooks.org if you want to find out more about it now. Really started, and this was in our lightning round of sort of mm-hmm. a, a, um, kind of a quick things we'll remember from the year that don't really have a superlative, but started really around the time of BookCon announcing their lineup. Um, which we were a part of to some small degree. But I think this was specifically a a young adult panel. Was that what got the We Need Diverse one? There was a young adult panel. It was just three white dudes. And yeah, there was a confluence of Yeah, I think – I can't remember the order of events it now. Was, I think it was the – the panel was announced first. Yes. That was – it's supposed to be like the superstars of young adult literature, and it was all white guys. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it came out that Rachel Renee Russell, who writes The Dork Diaries, which is an incredibly popular series, a middle grade series, I believe, um, she's an African-American woman, um, had asked if she could be... Uh, she had been invited. She, she'd, been, she'd asked if she could be on the panel and then was told no... And Mm -hmm. she started talking publicly about how she had been told no, that she, you know, could not be on that panel. Um, There were some conversations about moderating it as well. I don't, I don't remember all the details, but she was talking very vocally about how, you know, this is not okay Mm -hmm. that this panel of the rock stars of young adult literature, um, that BookCon, which was setting out to be like the destination for general readers who wanted to attend a book event um, was presenting that the rock stars of young adult literature were all white men. Um, I think it began that way. And then BookCon rolled out their full 
uh, roster of speakers, and that was your tweet heard around mm-hmm. the world, and and just a, a big flurry of activity online from a bunch of corners was that they had like twenty nine white people and grumpy cat, um, but no people of color on that primary roster. Um, but Khan responded with like, well, we value diversity and of course we have more things coming. And they did add some, uh, some speakers that were people of color to the lineup after that. But the, the way that they handled it, you know, we talked extensively about that. The way they handled it was not super great. Um, but the coolest thing was seeing we need diverse books move yeah. from being a, a hashtag conversation on Twitter to, you know, they took momentum and ran with it mm-hmm. um, and got established as a 501c3 or 3c. I can never remember which way those go. And there's a, a board of directors for this organization. They have a plan to establish um, internships within publishing so that more people of color They're gonna can do get, a diversity can, panel in DC right. in the summer of 2016 and some grant programs for authors and, to support them. A lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, they're gonna and to, do. to BookCon's credit, they partnered with We Need Diverse Books going into this BookCon for 2015 and we'll have um, multiple panels curated by the We Need Diverse Books uh, folks. So those will have people of color on them. They'll have writers who represent the LGBT community. You know, it's not just racial diversity Mm -hmm. that we need diverse books is going after, but having, you know, sort of the full definition of diversity um, in terms of sexual identity and gender identity and racial diversity and socioeconomic status and, you know, all of the ways in which our lives can be different um, represented in books and in the publishing world. Very cool. Very, very cool. Um, the study no one seems to understand. I want to I want to mm-hmm. point this one out real quick. Um, again, we talked a little bit about at the top of the show um, meta trends, and one story that um, I come back to. I actually have sent this link around when someone asks a question related to it, or I'm getting in a, a friendly disagreement with someone about how books are dying and books are dead, and um, that people actually read more books in 2014 uh, than they did in 2013. Uh, excuse me, I'm looking at this chart wrong. Uh, the chart is mislabeled. I remember this now. We talked about yep. it the first time. <laughs> it has like, how do they have the stats for 2013? Right. For 2014, more people read a book of any kind uh, than they did in in 2013. More people read a book of any kind than they did in 2012. Mm-hmm. 76% to 74%. More people read a print book and more people read an ebook. Um more reading period. More reading period, 2013 over 2012. So that's one thing I'll be interested to see in the same study for next year, what mm-hmm. the 2014 stats will be. This came out, let's see, is there a date on this? Maybe I can watch for it. This came January. out on January. Yeah, so yeah, maybe January in just a month, month or so. We'll see. And it was a big Pew Research Yes. Study. Wide ranging. Right. I think when we Robust, talked about the good methodology, methodology, we were um, not displeased with the methodology. So that's one, especially for those of you listening to this show, to hold in your your pocket that actually more people read books in 20... Well, actually, when people say no one reads anymore, more people read a book in 2013 than they did the year Mm -hmm. before. Yeah, we talked on last week's show when we were talking about James Patterson and the grants he's giving to indie bookstores and the narrative that he puts forth about how books are dying. Um, And if more people are reading than read in the previous year, that is the opposite kind of slope than mm-hmm. what di- than, than what dying looks like. Um, and I'm happy to see it. Why? Are, I just wish that books people like, let's get excited about this study when we have these numbers. Um, the things, and I've read all kinds of stuff about, you know, negative headlines are more likely to get passed around, period. And of course, editors know that. Um, studies that 
give us an opportunity to wring our hands and worry about the end of things, whatever the thing is that you care mm -hmm. about, are going to make the rounds on the internet more. But if you're if you're, you know, interested in the future of reading, it looks like the future is at least okay so far. I think it also is the case too that if you're a book nerd, you kind of just want it, the number to be a hundred percent. Like there's no number you're going to be happy with that isn't everyone reading quite a few All books a year, right? So it's like right. already you're sort of hand wringing. You wish more people read, and then to have the sense that technology and bookstores are closing and no one can make money and everything is terrible sort of feeds on that under, mm -hmm. sort of underlying desire and feeling that not enough people read anyway, and, and things are getting worse. <laughs> yeah, I is. think it's book media's job then to to try to counteract that like of course we want everybody or just to tell the to truth read. about it like right, you don't exactly. have to counter it just whatever to, the facts are right like you you know that your readers because they're book people wish that everyone read but let's not take advantage of it i think yes. that's what i'm trying to say like let's not take advantage of that tendency in passionate readers to be pissed off at things, the world that they don't read right, as much or, as they or do to make things seem like they're worse than they are for the sake of a headline three in ten adults read an ebook last year half Owned a tablet or e-reader. Most adults read a book yeah, in 2013. Like that's that's pretty good. Most like Most. I will take that. Like I don't know. I'm I perhaps I'm just jaded enough to be like I don't need everyone to read. I just <laughs> need enough people. Just the right amount of jaded. Right. Yeah. Um, so those are the, I think those are big stories of the year. Let's get to our heroes of no. Let's do turkeys of the year before the heroes. <laughs> yeah, get the, we can't. The we heroes can't get the end money on the turkeys. Yeah. Turkeys of the year. If you listen to this show, Man. this would be no surprise. Um, I think we got three runners up. Mm -hmm. oh boy, this is a hard. This is a, this is hard to put these in some kind There's of order. A, um, yeah. Well, let's see. The one that got the most news. Maybe we'll do it that way. Mm. Don't you think was Handler? I think so. Handler um, making racist jokes at the National Book Award at the expense of uh, Jacqueline Woodson, um, Claudine Rankin, of the, and the poetry nominees. I can't remember the other poetry nominee. Um, but making some jokes and uh, everyone rightly saying you're being a jackass and that's not at all appropriate. He apologized, um, made a huge donation, and here we are. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Yeah, that's one. I mean – and I guess ugh, it's. I don't know how you put these in competition with I, each other. Yeah, that was really all, fair. These are that was the not most of the public. Same like it was, a, it was a big event. You right. know, the National Book Award wants to be the Oscars of books and glitz and glamour and famous people being there and a you red know, carpet and so the, the spotlight was on and he crapped the bed. Then all three of these are cases of people revealing something about their mm. character that was either surprising or counter to the image that they had previously put forth. Um, I think that's the connecting thread to the three of these, but there are different levels of bad judgment mm -hmm. involved and different degrees of harm, I think. And um, different degrees of just sort of a weird kind of uh, entitlement, I think, right? Because yeah. the other one, the next one I'm going to go to is author Kathleen Hale stalking a blogger who gave her a bad review. Mm -hmm. um, pretending to be someone she wasn't in order to gain information. Calling the person's calling the place person's of employment. A, a place of work, driving by her home. Yeah. Um, really be, being as creepy as you can be without being criminal, I think. And 
stepping well, to I, the line of criminality. I don't yeah. think with, with, uh, without crossing it necessarily. It does seem weird that you can call some up, someone up and lie about who you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know, uh, I guess lying isn't against the law, but that one does seem like you're on the verge of fraud or something, you know, something you know, of, the, of that nature. I was the most, of the of these three stories, I was the most disturbed by how this story was handled yes. by a lot of publications. Like, there's no question that making racist remarks mm-hmm. at a book award is a problem, um, is a huge problem that needs to be addressed. And Handler did address it, and the National Book Awards did address it, and Jacqueline Woodson is talking about it. Like, at least that thing was, that very bad thing was handled correctly. Yeah. Um, But like half of the conversation that I saw online when this Kathleen Hale piece came out, and it was her writing the piece about how she had confronted this blogger and Goodreads user who wrote a negative review of her book and uh, whose review she attributed as the source of other people not reading her book. Like there's basically all kinds of crazy logical jumps. Yeah, it was basically like, well, you wrote a negative review of my book and you have a bunch of followers and influence. And so other people are also reviewing it negatively or aren't reading it at all. And now you're damaged me because of your review and that makes you a bully which no that's how book reviewing yeah, works that's how any bad. kind of consumer reviewing works it was bad logic on her part but like a bunch of authors that i follow who i don't follow anymore but a bunch of people that i followed on twitter were like oh it's so great of her to confront this blogger who's who said mean things about her book like no actually that's not how it works she wrote words and you could write words that's the, my take mm-hmm. on it. She wrote words online, and, and you get to write words online. And anything well, beyond that is crazy. I don't think also, responding to bad reviews is a good move. Like, what authors ever come out looking good on that? Like, just play mm-hmm. the percentages there. Yeah, nobody comes out of that. I like definitely roses. understand the impetus. People have said nasty stuff about us. Sure. Um, and we'll respond if it's in a comment or something like that. But we don't, you know, write huge pieces about. Uh, One. Well, I don't know. I think. Part of publishing your work, whether it's a book or you run a website or a podcast or or whatever, part of having work published and made available to the public is that the people who read that work are going to respond mm-hmm. to it in whatever way they want, and that's their prerogative, and they can do it, and you cannot stop them. Mm-hmm. And when other people express an opinion about their work to whatever audience they express that opinion – that will have consequences potentially to how your work is received by that audience or whether your book is bought or not bought by that audience. And this is all how consumers talking about products works. Yep. Um, if we think about Book Riot as a product, people who don't like what we do can write we nasty things. We cannot control what they say. Right. They can say whatever they want. If their friends never come to the website because of that, okay, that's fine. That's how mm-hmm. it works. Like there's a, there's a huge, big universe of books to read. We all go to different sources to help us determine which books we're going to read and not read. For some people, this blogger was a source. Okay, that this is part of the deal. When you become an author, you don't get to control what people say about your book. And you also don't get to tell them that they're bullies when they don't like your book, even if you don't like the way that it's phrased. Like, I read the original review. It is not nice. No. but I wouldn't call it evil. I wouldn't it's call not it, evil. Right. I don't think person, it's malicious even necessarily. Person, it's negative to be right, sure. Right. A person giving a negative review of any product, and let's be real books or products, mm-hmm. is not evil or bad or unethical. And if you feel that they've done damage to your career because they criticized your work, or maybe you're, I don't know, I've criticized authors' public behavior 
with the intention of look at this author's nasty public behavior. If you have a problem with that, don't support you know, this is one that of those author's work. That this is how, like, capitalism, that's how it works. This is one of those things, kind of like we are talking about before. This is not actually about the dishes. I think this is about the right. toilet. I, I don't know <laughs> that it's this Kathleen Hale's response was really – it was focused on this particular blogger and this particular review. But I think it's actually way down the line of the chain of influence. I think mm-hmm. it's to some degree it's about Goodreads. Mm. Um, as a platform, having enormous power. I think it's also about the, you know, one thing that is dwindling for sure is the space um, given to review coverage in major traditional media so that the remaining space is coveted and feels Mm. more important. Um, I think it's also about the internet and access to each other, author, reader, reviewer, critic alike, there's just more symmetry. There used to be such an asymmetry in terms of power and exposure that the author was um, the author and critics were critic. That's sort of a side mm-hmm. category of person. And then there were consumers and the power structure was relatively stable. Right. And one thing the internet has done is destabilize that um, triangle of influence um, and access. And Hale sort of fell into the Bermuda Triangle of mm-hmm. thinking about those things all in once. And rather than sort of acknowledging that my anxiety is about my career and my book, Goodreads has a lot of influence. This woman is on Goodreads and I have access to her because of the internet. All the things came together in a storm of bad judgment um, and allowed her to do some things that, you know, were, I think, unconscionable on an author's mm-hmm. point of view. So that's enough about that. Um, the third in our triumvirate of terrible for this year, John Grisham, who um, may be in a way the most chilling kind of moment, <sighs> um, was for an interview, I don't remember what his new book is. I can't keep up with the Grisham books. I, I have to say, I, I used to read them back in the day and you know, there's too many and i not my tea anymore. But I, so I, I apologize for not knowing the name of the most current book he was talking about and got into a conversation in a newspaper with, you know, about life, the universe and everything as these things tend to go. And for some reason decided to, to call out how uh, penalties for looking at child pornography were too stiff because, you know, you could be kicking back and this is not too much of a caricature. It's not. Uh, with a bourbon one night, if you're an old man who doesn't really understand technology and accidentally click on something and suddenly you're, you're looking at a f- naked 15-year-old girl or something of that nature. And he, he was saying that some, this happened to an acquaintance of his who's you know, spending a few years in jail and it really, you know, it's not his fault. It was an unfortunate accident. Turns out, let's put that to the side, whatever that, let's, what, I'm gonna bracket the thinking about what he actually said. Let's say that was actually the truth. There's a lot of things you could talk about that. But it turns out he had actually given a character reference for a guy who had been collecting and looking at pictures of like 12 year olds. Mm-hmm. So he had told, he had totally mischaracterized the situation and minimized child pornography at one stroke, which is like a really kind of interesting and two-handed screw up. There are some me. weird, like sexist and homophobic yeah. bits yes. in the statement that he makes. Like the, I think the new book has something to do with the prison system and wrongful imprisonment, uh, and that's how he oh, got that's down. Right, it is something like that. Yeah. That's like how he got down this line was like, well, why are you thinking about the prison system and wrongful imprisonment? He's like, ah, oh, because there are these nice sixty-year-old white men mm-hmm. who have been in prison for way longer than they should have for accidentally clicking on links to child pornography and like they didn't know it was child pornography and they just clicked one thing and now they're in prison forever and you know i've got to say i've clicked a lot of links in my day yeah and uh 
I don't think I've even come within a, a galaxy of no. child pornography through an accidental like, click. We were just joking in my house like two nights ago about how if a thing says like click below for NSFW gallery, I will be like, yes, mm. I will click that just out of pure curiosity. And I like my internet curiosity has never led me to accidental that there are reasons the internet is relatively well regulated yeah. in terms of how difficult it is. Like you don't accidentally find no, you have to end up child on, like, pornography Darknet or something. Like you that. have to go, <laughs> yeah, right. you have to go looking for it. And so this like aside from the huge problem of John Grisham minimizing the impact of child pornography and the gross sexist homophobic stuff he said in that interview is also this guy clearly does not understand how the internet mm-hmm. works and then he was surprised like a day later when I think it was Gawker figured out yeah. who the friend was that he had been referring to because, of course, these things are a matter of public record. And it was I think it was from like 1997 where Grisham had written a letter in support of this friend. He was a lawyer, and the, if I remember. Right. And the news comes out of like, actually, there was the, a case where this person was caught trading mm-hmm. por- pornographic images of children online. And this is the person that John Grisham is trying to defend and also state that you know well-meaning middle-aged men really can't be in jail porn, right really you just, just can't put them in prison really, it was really, it's they just, shouldn't be there it was it was a storm i mean think of the tweed the tweed alone mm. is so inappropriate you know when you're a white guy you get older you look terrible in bright colors because you kind of pale out i don't even know what's happening right now Jeff. i'm just saying he's that's probably what he's saying <laughs> they shouldn't be there they look bad in the colors I don't know what what is it that 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 that's the that's the big stomach turner of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever order you want to put those three, I'll leave it to you, dear listener, to uh, to think about. Yeah, I think that's the one that went out of the book world in the biggest way. Like I saw yeah. most of the Daniel Handler coverage was within the book world. The Kathleen Hale stuff was definitely within the book world. But like I saw people who don't work in publishing sharing articles about John Grisham on yep. Facebook and on Twitter. And so that that was spoken of. It was just so, it was just the weirdest thing to wake up to that day of like, what did John Grisham say and why? Mm-hmm. And just, okay. So those are, those are okay. They cleanse the, the triumvirate of turkeys. Spit out or wipe your mouth or, you know, take a sip of, uh, uh, smell some coffee beans. Isn't that what's supposed to clear the, the, the nose yes. or, or eat some sorbet like at, at a fine restaurant to clear the palate. Here are heroes of the year. Let's do our runners up. Okay. First. Well, we had a couple of um, women mm-hmm. who saved money their whole lives and at the end of their life left substantial donations to libraries. Um, the first I want to mention is Ann Cook, who was a former teacher uh, in Omaha mm-hmm. and saved money, invested well, presumably. And in her will left $2.5 million to the Council Bluffs Library. She loved the library and she worked um, She worked there and reading there and went there for 70 plus years. And at the end of her life left $2.5 million. So Ann Cook and the other one. Lottie Fields. Lottie Fields bequeathed $6 million to the New York Public Library after her death. Um, she, she was 89. 89 from her husband's family were super successful wool merchants. And as part of her bequests, 
Um, the, she left $6 million. The library is going to evenly divide the funds between its branch library system and the main building in Manhattan at 42nd Street and 6th Avenue. So those are two remarkable women who, um, when, when they sat down to decide how they were going to leave their, you know, the, the things they have collected and earned and inherited through their lives, made sizable donations to, to libraries. So those are, that's always going to get um, some love from us. Another one. Tiny hero. Tiny hero. You want to walk us through this one? This is um, nine-year-old Spencer Collins, who's from Leewood, Kansas, which is a suburb near where both of us grew up. Uh, so we were particularly interested in this story. He wanted to put a little free library in his front yard. They, he and his parents put one up, and then they received notice that uh, the city's building ordinances prohibited permanent structures in front yards, and he was going to have to take down his little free library. Mm -hmm. So Spencer Collins went before the Leewood City Council and got a bunch of support from people, including um, back when this was happening, Daniel Handler as Lemony Snicket, like wrote a letter of support for the project. And he, he lobbied his local city council, and they allowed his little free library and made exceptions, made an exception to the ordinance. So now you can build a little free library in your front yard in Leewood, Kansas, and share books and literature with your neighborhood. Thanks to nine-year-old Spencer Collins, who had to stand on a milk crate in order to reach the microphone, which is adorable and awesome. Good job, Spencer. Good job. And we're, we're going number one at part of a larger story, but we're going to single one particular person out um, for... We've talked about this. So I don't know what the number is now. We've talked about it on the show before, but the last count that we heard officially, over $350,000 had been raised online for the Ferguson County Public Library um, over there in Missouri, as you know, has, has been at the epicenter of the, the Michael Brown and Ferguson protests. And Ashley Ford got the ball rolling online, um, suggesting to people that if they want, if they felt like they were moved to give somewhere, that the Ferguson County Public Library was staying open when schools were closed, when businesses were closed, um, providing places for people to go, get information, have community, and got the ball rolling. A lot of people saw her tweet. She, she tweeted about it repeatedly. Um, she was in contact with the library about what they could use and what they needed. And not only there were $350,000, but there's other offers of support and services, including re redesigning the web page and thinking about programming and individual book donations through a book list through PALS. Um, but as far as we can tell, Ashley was the point person and the one that sparked the fire um, that resulted in a sizable donation to a mm -hmm. library and it's going to make some difference there. Yeah. When it began, I, I recall seeing Ashley say on Twitter that she wasn't the first person to tweet about it. Um, and I know she is not in this for herself mm -hmm. or for credit for it. Um, but she is the one who picked this up and ran with it um, and really organized the efforts around supporting the Ferguson Library. Um, she's been working behind the scenes to help them get their website remade, um, to find volunteers who you know are going to contribute services to help make that happen. She's, she took this on as a thing to coordinate, um, and that's the extra step there. Mm -hmm. You know, She said, I wasn't the first person to see that you could donate. I wasn't the first person to tweet about it. But Ashley, you get the cape this year. Um, for Someone's got to get the game ball. The Everyone played the game. A lot of people played in the game, but someone gets the game ball. Uh, yeah, and exactly. In this particular effort, um, it's Ashley Ford gets the game ball. So those are our good job 
book-related heroes of the year. So now we're going to do, we're going to do our last sponsor, and then we're mm-hmm. going to pick our best books of the year and then name a few things we're looking for in 2015. So let's do our All last right. sponsor. Our last sponsor this week is The House That Jack Built by Jacob Melander. This is a new se- crime series featuring a detective named Lars Winkler, and it's translated, uh, it's translated from, I think, the Dutch uh, by a man named Paul Russell Garrett. The um, detective here, again, is Lars Winkler. He's a loner, a dad, a former drug addict, and he is the most dedicated detective in Copenhagen. Uh, The story begins when a young prostitute is found murdered at the common in Copenhagen. Her body has been preserved. Man, this is creepy. Mm. And her, her eyes were removed with surgical precision. Not long after, another body is discovered treated in the exact same manner, and the, the press quickly names the spectacular case the Sandman Killings. Detective Inspector Lars Winkler is put on the case. He has an addiction to classic rock and occasionally some speed, and he's struggling to get his life back together. Um, he has a 16-year-old daughter as well who lives with him in his rundown apartment. His wife left him for his former boss. Things are not going super well for Lars Winkler, uh, but he's going to solve this crime uh, about these killings, the the Sandman killings. Um, this is the first book in a new series. International crime fiction has just been exploding over the last few years, and the series um, can be compared to Lars Ke- to the Lars Kepler books. Uh, Jacob Melander crafts a tense, creepy atmosphere, and the novel has this chilling crime, but also um, a, a brilliant fun to read central character. I think thrillers are great, especially mm-hmm. for holiday reading um, when you're traveling and you want something that's focused on the plot and, you know, will move very quickly. So you can check out The House That Jack Built by Jacob Melander. We'll have a link in the show notes or you can get it wherever books are sold. And thanks to them for sponsoring this week. Okay. It will it will come as no surprise to listeners of the show. What I mean, there's no surprises in our favorite books of the year. Right. No. I mean, we've talked about all these books. But I know I have, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure you have as well. We both have too many picks. <laughs> we do. Okay. So we've talked. Hmm. We can knock out our fir- our top favorites because we talked about those a few weeks back in detail. Right. So I picked Land of Love and Drowning by Tiffany Unique as my favorite book of the year, and you picked Boy Snowbird by Helen by Oyeyemi. Helen Oyeyemi. Great. So we we've talked about, talked those. about those. We liked those books. Um, so where are you going to go? I like to nonfiction books that I listened to on audio this year, both of them about creativity and technology, really creativity incorporated by Ed Catmull about the founding and running and maintenance of Pixar um, Mm -hmm. from its inception all the way up to its acquisition by Disney just last year or two years ago. Really interesting stuff, both behind the scenes about Pixar, but also about management and business um, and, uh, you know, staying creative even in an institutional setting. Second, Innovators by Walter Isaacson. It's about the invention of the computer world as we know it, going all the way back to um, uh, Ada, Earl of Lovelace um, in the 19th century and her relationship with Charles Babbage, not relationship romantically, but her correspondence and um, interest in computing and programming. She kind of foretold what the general purpose computer would be someday, basically a a general purpose, a logical machine that could be reprogrammed for any purpose, um, all the way up through, and I think the last thing was, um, you know, kind of gives all the way up through Google. So through the internet and to Google is kind of where it ends um, with some mention of, you know, social networking and things of that nature. Using particular products and innovations and the people behind them to tell the story, you know, computers and digital technology don't have 
kind of the romanticized, you know, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, this sort of one person doing one thing resulting in one product. It was a lot of people over a lot of time, a lot of stories I didn't know, incremental change, um, and also, you know, like how important the transistor was, and then how important the system on a chip was, and then how important packet switching was. Um, all those things combined to, to lead us to the place we are now. Uh, really interesting read, a great listen. Um, I recommended it on the book show we did for Holiday Recommendations. So those are my nonfiction picks. Just want to mention Lila by Marilyn Robinson. Loves, yeah. You know, it's not a surprise. In a way, kind of underrated because I kind of got what I was wanting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd gotten a little bit of it before but with Gilead and Holmes, so it doesn't quite ripple the pond as much it might have been if it had been sort yeah, of cut out of whole cloth anew. It's like how you're no longer surprised when Meryl Streep turns in an right, amazing yes, performance. Yes, you know, yes. like we know Marilyn Robinson is what we know what we're getting with Marilyn Robinson and that it's going to be satisfying, but I love Lila. And then for my page well. Turner of the Martian by Andy Weir, which I've talked mm. about before, I talked about last week as well. And then the one, I don't know, I've talked about a while, the book of unknown Americans by Christine Henriquez um, mm. was a book, a debut book. I really liked this year as well. So check those out. Those are my picks. Mm, okay. My page turners. I think I've talked about, both of these, um, An Untamed State by Roxane Gay, which is about a Haitian-American woman who goes back to Haiti with her husband to visit her family, who's very wealthy. And she is kidnapped by people who want to hold her for ransom in order to get the money from her wealthy, uh, from her very wealthy father. Terrible, all of the terrible things that you think happen to a person who is abducted by bad men who want to hold her for ransom happen to this woman. And it is unflinching in the way that Roxane Gay looks at that experience and is in the main character. Her name is Maria, um, in her head while that happens. The father won't pay the ransom on principle, and for 13 days, the woman's husband is struggling to find a way to save her. It's one of the most difficult books that I read this year and, and in a long time for how directly it looks at very painful, terrible mm. experiences, but it's also beautifully and perfectly paced. It's a page turner and it's ultimately redemptive and hopeful. Um, Just a knockout of a novel and sort of stunning that uh, this is a a debut. Um, Roxanne has written a bunch of short stories. Her writing is um, prolific and not difficult to find, but I was super impressed with the book and I've seen it on a bunch of end of year lists. I'm very happy about that. Great read would be good for a book club if you want to get into some, you know, meaty topics, um, but really unforgettable. I think I'm going to be thinking about that one for a while. Um, Also, Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng, which I think I talked about just on Mm -hmm. last week's show briefly, is about a family in the 70s um, where one of the parents is an immigrant and the other parent is white. And so they have that difference of experience. Their teenage daughter has died. She dies on the, like, we know that she's dead on the first page, Mm. so I'm not spoiling anything for you, but it rewinds back to what led up to this girl's death. Was it foul play? Was it a suicide? Like, how did this happen? And also what were the dynamics in her family that were leading up to the situation? Um, Largely with the mother putting a a lot of her hopes onto this daughter, Mm -hmm. things that the mother didn't get to do in her own life, pressuring um, indirectly and directly pressuring the daughter to sort of fulfill vicariously 
um, those goals. It's a really fascinating look at a family, at a marriage, at this mother-daughter dynamic, but also at the experience of being the one person in your family and in your community uh, who's not white and what that can mean. And it's so brilliant. I read it in one sitting and just phenomenal. Um, I also loved The Book of Strange New Things by Michelle Faber. My favorite memoir, unsurprisingly, of the year was Yes, Please Mm -hmm. by Amy Poehler. Um, And for young adult, Gloria O'Brien's History of the Future by A.S. King, which is about teenage girls who find a petrified bat and they crumble him into dust and mix him with warm beer and drink it. And it gives them the power to see people when they look at a person to see the person's sort of infinite past and future. And they start to see those future flashes and realize that there's going to be another civil war in America, but that it will be over um, women's rights. And uh, it's just unapologetically feminist and smart, also about family issues and teenage identity. Uh, I love A.S. King, and, and I was knocked out there. I guess my sleeper of the year. Can I just keep going? Uh, I'm, just, um, I'm just here. Just keep going. Stone Mattress, the new short story collection by Margaret Atwood. I just, it was awesome. And I just feel like publishing did not do a very Mm. good job of being like, hey guys, there's a new Margaret Atwood short story collection. Mm -hmm. So guys, it's out there and you should read it. It's great. And kudos to Lev Grossman for wrapping up Uh, the Magician series beautifully this year. I loved that. With The Magician's Land is the third one. Good year. Somebody's got to come not, not, I mean, like we said, again, we're refer- referring to a show you may have just listened to that we recorded yesterday. There mm-hmm. wasn't a breakout um, title. You know, there's no Gone Girl, no Fifty mm-hmm. Shades, no Divergent, no Hunger Games kind of title. No Goldfinch even, right. which was a big book last year. It continued to sell well into 2014. But – Again, a lot of interesting stuff continues. Um, it was continues. a very good year for books. Next year, we're going to get a Morrison. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing rumors of a Margaret Atwood. I heard that, too. We are getting a Marilyn Robinson essay collection. Yep. The surely-to-be-talked-about um, book will be Franzen's new novel coming yep. out in the spring, I believe. Do you know what else is coming out next year? On January 6th, Almost Famous Women by uh, Megan Mayhew Bergman. Bergman, that's one you're looking forward She's, to. Yeah, that's a great collection. She's one of my favorite short story writers. Uh, whom, I had a big list. I have a list for the 2015 oh, okay. predictions don't, show, don't, yeah. but I don't have it in front yeah, of me. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. Um, so in a couple of things, we, I mean, the things we're going to be watching for next year, doing directs, you know, it's kind of the things mm-hmm. that started this year, kind of like subscriptions did in 2013, things we got little acorns of and see what grows into a tree. I think publishers doing direct sales, that's one that we're going to see a lot more about. What happens to subscriptions in another year? Continue to keep rolling. Bundling, are there going to be more things there? I think that diversity, this diversity train is going to be chugging along in Mm -hmm. 2015. What happens to Amazon eBooks? That's my, that's my sort of uh, keeping box score thing. (laughs) I'm looking at numbers there. I'm very interested in what's going on there. So I think any, any, um, Anything else you're looking for in 2015 that you expect or hope for? Oh, I don't know. I'm saving it. I'm saving it for the preview okay. show. Okay, yeah, that's a good idea. That's a I'm good idea. Be mysterious. All right, yes, BKG never does anyone wrong. So as always, thank you so much to all of you for listening this year. Um, we've had a great time doing it. We're going to cover our hundredth episode um, here in a couple, in, in a few spring. months in the spring. Um, we've got our our idea for that show has been ask us anything. 
uh, book related, non book related. You can ask anything, doesn't mean we'll answer everything, but we'll take interesting questions there uh, as well. So, podcast at bookriot.com. You can find show notes. There's a lot of links for this show, but as always, you can find links to this show and to all other shows at bookriot.com slash podcast. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at the Jeff O'Neill, uh, O-N-E-A-L. Rebecca's at, at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Uh, if you've got time over the holidays, our official rate and review drive for 2014 is over. But that does not mean that if you have a few extra minutes on your new iPad or MacBook or iPhone or whatever, and you're looking for something to do with your new device, rating and writing a review of the show on iTunes would not um, be unwelcome for us. Uh, and I think that's our show. That is our 2014. Rebecca, thank you so much as always for being my partner in crime here. Uh, I always look forward to it every week. And uh, we got another great year ahead of us. Merry, merry, happy, happy. <laughs> <laughs>